1 Corinthians 9 and begin to read at verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Well, friends, we're continuing our studies uh, in the life of the Apostle Paul. And uh, this evening, I'm just going to really briefly uh, touch upon his letters and also upon, uh, briefly upon his uh, preaching. So there are some uh, good lessons, I think, here for us uh, from these things. And uh, the letters especially, just it's, speak about it in an introductory way because they're going to introduce us to the Apostle Paul in more detail over the coming weeks. We'll be looking at his character, drawing uh, from the letters that he has written. Last week we had that whistle-stop whistle -stop tour uh, of his journeys, went through at <laughs> quite a fast uh, pace, uh, and we gained some insight uh, into who the Apostle is and some of his burdens and his endeavors after his conversion. His desire to preach Christ, the Christ was not known, to plant churches, his desire was there, as evident, his indefatigable spirit in the midst of opposition and persecution, nothing deterred him, even though he knew uh, the Holy Spirit had told him, had preempted him, every city he's going to go into, there's going to be suffering awaiting you, that didn't deter him, that he still went on. He, was, he didn't turn back like John Mark turned back when the difficulties were there. He went ahead because he loved souls and he cared for souls. And this was, was the driving, the motivating factor uh, in him so often. His care for the churches, we could uh, have talked about a bit more. Remember how he said, let us go again and visit our brethren uh, in every city and see how they do. He's concerned. He'd just come back not so long from that first missionary journey, and he said, let's go again a few months later. You could, uh, his, you could, when in those journeys, we saw his purpose, uh, his planning. It wasn't some haphazard activity, just going from whatever place to whatever place, uh, you know, without any forethought and planning. He planned the cities that uh, uh, he was to go to. He didn't major on these things uh, last week, but if you look at it, you will see how he determined to go su to such and such a city, and that's where he went. But when uh, the Holy Spirit forbade him and said, don't go to Bithynia and don't go uh, to this other place, 
then he didn't go. He was, but he had that in mind. This is what we are going to do. So we, we learn and see something of the apostle from his journeys there in the Acts and uh, from what R Luke uh, wrote upon him. And those are impressive. And we would, be, we would think, well, we, we know a fair bit about Paul. But it's really when you come to the letters, friends, that you get to see a lot more about the Apostle Paul. In Acts, really, what we find out from Luke uh, is really only half the story, maybe not even half of the man that we are finding out, and yet there is so much. But when you go to his letters, and you begin to look through his letters and, and see how he unveils himself for us there, uh, in an, uh, not in a deliberate way, inadvertently it comes out, uh, then we begin to really rea realize and see the driving forces that behind this man, the things that concerned him, his joys, his sorrows, the things that were upon his mind, uh, all these things are coming through uh, in uh, his letters. There we find the apostle, the man, uh, shows uh, himself. So the letters, you, saw, you have all the doctrines, you have the instructions uh, for the churches, uh, how they are to conduct themselves, you have the exhortations uh, to the brethren, but then you also have that autobiographical sketch of the Apostle Paul, and he's uh, letting us in, uh, in this inadvertent way, uh, to, uh, his, to himself. There are some experiences, even in the letters, which are not mentioned in the Acts. Uh, things like his trip to Arabia, or his confrontation with uh, Peter. Uh, those things are not mentioned, in, uh, picked up in Acts by Luke, but uh, we find them in his letters. But especially uh, his inner thoughts uh, come through, and those joys and motivations that were driving him. And, uh, and, and so we'll think a little bit about uh, these things. So Paul, as we said before, he had a brilliant mind. He was a, a very able thinker, maybe perhaps the greatest thinker of his generation, or the greatest thinker of the age, apart from the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, yet the amazing thing, even though he was such, and he had all these thoughts all the time going on in his head, and, and he was a man of great intellectual capacity, yet he never wrote a book. He never put all his, his thoughts uh, down in one full book uh, for us uh, to read. They're all coming through to us in letters. The thoughts are communicated to us in, uh, in letters, and they were written initially uh, to the church. He didn't sit down and uh, think, or, or take a six-month sabbatical and say, okay, now let me write a book, and everything that God has revealed to me, let me put it for the future generations. It would be nice if he'd done that, but in the one sense, for us who are preachers, it would save the, the, the trouble of having to search all over the place to gather the information and collate that information that would make us probably lazy. But uh, it's, it, the, the doctrines come to us not as a systematic theology, which you can buy off the shelf these days, of the Apostle Paul, but they come through our, to us in the letters uh, that uh, he has written. Uh, and so this is uh, an interesting way that, of course, the, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but uh, he's, he's just uh, getting on uh, with uh, the work. Paul didn't write uh, this big tome, but he wrote instead uh, letters uh, to churches and letters uh, to individuals like uh, Philemon and Timothy and Titus 
and so on. And you have to marvel again at this because he had such a busy schedule. He wasn't a man who was uh, just a, a, a writing pastor. He was, he was a man not just settled in one place. He was a man who was, had a hectic sh uh, schedule. He was always uh, on the move, always on the go, always have uh, things to do. Some, all the time preaching, definitely, and uh, oftentimes he had to preach and work for his living, work to support uh, himself. Daytime, perhaps, uh, preaching, nighttime working, or vice versa. So he was a very uh, busy man, and yet he still found time uh, to write uh, to uh, the churches and to, the, to these individuals. It reminded me of uh, Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon, in his biography by, uh, 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 in Dalimo's biography of him, uh, says that uh, Spurgeon penned up to, can you guess how many letters he wrote a week? 500, up to 500 letters a week. This is Spurgeon. And he was no, uh, no uh, writing past either. He was uh, one who uh, preached, it said, four to, up to four, four to ten times a week. And then he, he read uh, six books, weighty books on, on top of that a week. He revised his sermons. He edited the Sword and Trowel uh, magazine, counseled uh, individuals. He directed the Spurgeon's College and the orphanage and charities uh, that were under the church. And at the same time, he never neglected his family. On Wednesdays, on his recreation day, he always had time for his wife and his two sons. He made time uh, for them and for rest. And uh, in his spare time, <laughs> his spare time, he wrote books. <laughs> he wrote up to about 150 books, uh, it said. Uh, David Livingston, uh, one said to Mr. Spurgeon, how can you accomplish so much in one day? And uh, perhaps you know Spurgeon's reply. You forget, Mr. Livingston, he said, there are two of us working. And uh, he is referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit working with him. Well, friends, that's an encouragement for us. If Paul is like this and Spurgeon is like this, yes, they were uh, very blessed and capable men in their own right, but surely also maybe challenges us uh, that we can perhaps do a little bit more uh, than we, we do. But going back to Paul and uh, his letters, how thankful, friends, we can be uh, that they've come to us in this literary uh, genre. Uh, letters uh, instead of uh, poetry or uh, some historical uh, documents. Because letters, well, they really are the most personal form of communication, isn't it? The most personal form of uh, literature. And uh, when a person writes a letter, they usually uh, tell you about something about themselves. And if they don't, you're a little bit disappointed if you receive letters without any personal information. And Paul doesn't disappoint us. When we are reading through his letters, he's constantly visible. He can, he's constantly uh, seen. And if you haven't done this, I encourage you to do it. Uh, something I'm doing at the moment, and just going through his letters and just look for the Apostle Paul and look for these autobiographical notes that he, he, he says about himself. And there are so many, and they're so very uh, helpful uh, to us in our Christian uh, lives. But it's not his primary task to talk about uh, himself. He's writing to address particular occasions or 
situations in churches. Uh, perhaps there are problems. Often it's, there are problems in churches, and that's the purpose why he has written the letter. You remember Galatians is written to tackle those false teachers who have gone in and were preaching Christ and circumcision. And he is addressing that particular issue in, that, uh, in the letter to the Galatians. In Corinthians, he often, <coughs> that phrase comes up again and again. Now concerning this, now concerning that. They had written to him and said, we, how should we do in this particular situation? How should we hold the Lord's Supper? And, and, and so on. And uh, he's responding uh, to those questions in, uh, in the letters that he writes. And of course, church order and practice. And then he writes to in, uh, individuals to instruct them, to encourage them. Uh, but alongside these things, we, are see, we will see, uh, in, in God willing, next, next few weeks, Paul's own thoughts uh, coming in and his character uh, there for us to be followed. Not just to be admired, but to be followed. Paul even said that we should follow him. He's an example to us, not only in terms of how we should organize the church, he's also an example to us in life. How we should, the, the same spirit, the same characteristics that he has and shows uh, for the Lord should be in you uh, and, and me. So his letters, we could also say, are written from the heart. He doesn't write to impress people. Uh, he doesn't write to, he doesn't write a letter, uh, first, first draft, and then go through it and edit it and re-edit it and then polish it all up and you know, add those nice adjectives to make it look good and uh, you know, present it as if you're preparing a paper for uh, your professor or whether you're, you know, you're thinking ahead, you're trying to win the, was it the Booker Prize or something. He hasn't got these things in mind at all. He's not writing to impress. He's writing to help. He's writing to encourage uh, the people. Uh, he's writing to correct error. So he's not doing it for himself or his own glory. Uh, but, and yet his words, so marvelous words, uh, transcend, isn't it, the ages. And still today, they are relevant for us in an amazing way. He wrote for that particular church, that particular situation, and yet uh, the Holy Spirit so used it uh, that it's relevant for ages all the way down uh, to uh, today. So we see uh, this original thought uh, in uh, his writing, and yet we say, of course, it is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he wrote uh, these things. So, but that uh, unpolished way of his letters has often been commented on and you see it as you're reading through it. You'll see uh, he begins a sentence and he doesn't complete it. And uh, sometimes he digresses off and he forgets to come back to the subject that uh, he'd started off with. And uh, sometimes uh, he, he uh, has very long sentences, like in Ephesians uh, chapter 2. So it's a, he has a, you have to really keep the very close arguments uh, there are all together. And he's often writing in this way. Uh, and yet it's not disordered. It's not as if you can't follow it, but he just sometimes gets so excited uh, when he's talking about something. When he, he talks about, in uh, I think it's Ephesians 3, he's talking about being a, an apostle to the Gentiles, and he, he, he's going to talk, uh, 
he digresses to talk about how God had made him a minister of the Gentiles. And he went through that whole process and before he comes back to his subject uh, and uh, talks about praying uh, for uh, the Ephesians that Christ may dwell in them. But uh, this, this is uh, something uh, really of uh, his uh, letters and what an inspiration uh, they have been to so many people. What a lot of books have been written uh, just from these words. And what an impact they've had on millions of lives. We've said this before. It's no harm uh, saying it again. We've all been affected here. We're believers. We're trusting in Christ. What is the one thing that has so affected us? Of, of the words of Paul, justification by faith. By that, that doctrine, that teaching. Somebody uh, said, uh, Luther awoke Europe with a word from Paul. And that's true. With this uh, doctrine of justification by faith. So, so many books have been written about his words. And uh, so many uh, things have been said. So many sermons uh, have been preached. But uh, as, as, as I've said, we're going to look through it really just to pick up uh, his uh, character. And we'll do that, God willing, in due, in due time next week. But 2 Peter 3.16, uh, Peter says of Paul's letters, his epistles, in his epistles there are some things hard to be understood. And he also refers to them as scriptures. He puts them on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. That's how he speaks of it. So there's a depth. It's, not, it's, it's so simple in one sense that uh, people can read it. And yet there's a depth in his words and profundity that's there. And uh, sometimes it, uh, you need to really think about it. And sometimes it takes a while before it clicks. <laughs> I can imagine, place yourself in the church at Rome uh, and uh, the congregation there at Rome in that first century. And when they received his letter for the first time to Romans, and it was read out to the church, and there were many slaves there, and, and Jews and Gentiles were mixed in that congregation. Well, there would have been things that they were picked up immediately, and other things they would have said, we have to hear this again. We need to have it read to us again. And uh, it was so uh, tremendous, uh, really, the things that uh, he wrote. In, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 and verse uh, 10, uh, we read, uh, For his letters say they, these, uh, this is the opponents of, of Paul, his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Uh, this is what was said, uh, they said about Paul. In other words, he comes across in his letters in a strong, forceful, uh, severe, uh, impressive way. But his personal appearance, <laughs> oh, that's a different story. He's weak uh, in that way. And his speech, oh, that's so unimpressive. There's nothing there really to admire about the way that he speaks. Well, is it true? Is this accusation of theirs uh, true that they spoke about him? Well, perhaps, well, this is what people say, that he's, his, he was apparently of a short stature. Uh, he wasn't uh, a tall man. Uh, many think he was also bald-headed man with a long hooked nose. And uh, 
uh, also uh, it's it, it suggested that he had a disfigurement in his appearance. And that may have put people off when they first saw him. In Galatians 4.13, you remember uh, how he said about, through the infirmity of the flesh, I first preached the gospel to you. Yet you didn't despise me, nor reject me. Instead, you received me as an angel of God. And you would have plucked out your own eyes, as if to say, Perhaps there was something wrong with his eyes, something visible, physically visible, that people could see that made him somewhat uh, unattractive, as it were, or put people off when they first saw him. Perhaps it had something to do with him being blinded when the, when the Lord met him on that road to Damascus. That's, uh, that's, there's, not, there's no confirmation by that, just an idea. Of thought. <coughs> yeah, but there was, it, it seems there may have been something like that in his appearance. That, and this may have been disconcerting to Paul because wherever he went for the first time, he may have been worried and concerned that people who are going to hear the gospel are not going to receive him because they will be put off by what they see, uh, what they see in his physical appearance. Of course, once they got to know him, that would be a different uh, story. But uh, his personal appearance, perhaps there was some of this uh, weakness uh, in it. His speech, unimpressive? Was it really? I don't think so. I don't think he was unimpressive. I'm, I, I don't think he was orator-like. Remember, he's, he's writing here to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are, are Greeks, and they wanted the impressive uh, preacher. They wanted the spectacular preacher. They wanted the free-flowing preacher, the one who had flowery words and, uh, and could uh, use those adjectives and and speak in that kind of elaborate way. They wanted uh, somebody like that, somebody impressive. And uh, Paul, well, he, would, he refused uh, to do that. Maybe he could have done that, but he refused to go down that path. And he spoke in a clear way. He spoke in a powerful way. He spoke in a, a, a simple way, but uh, a winsome way, we could say, as well. But he didn't uh, speak in a way that would uh, uh, be flowery and uh, appeal to people just on the basis. He didn't want to uh, come across as an impressive preacher. He, he cared for people. He wanted people to understand the word. He wanted to get his message across. He wanted people to understand and grasp the message, not to be leave thinking, oh, what a great preacher Paul is. He wanted them to leave thinking, what a great God this is. What a tremendous truth this is that we have heard about uh, tonight. And so this is, uh, so I'm sure uh, he could uh, speak and speak clearly the things uh, that the Lord had revealed uh, to him. So uh, this is really just an introduction to say uh, to his uh, letters, to say a few things about his, his, his uh, epistles. But I just want to say uh, a little bit as well about his preaching, uh, the preaching of Paul, and really just to look at one aspect of it. There are many things, again, one could say about it. But to think about the, his tact and his skill in uh, using uh, his message and adapting his message depending on his congregation, the audience that he was speaking to. And he's very good at doing this. He doesn't just say, I've got this one message and I'm going to keep it the same and whoever is before me, I'm just going to you know, deliver it to them. And they, it's up to them, it's up to God to work and let the Holy Spirit work. And No, he, was, he had to use wisdom. 
And we have to be like that as well. When we're witnessing to people, we cannot just come at people with, in the same way. We have to think about, well, who am <coughs> I speaking to? Where, is the, where are they coming from? What's their background? You know, sometimes we, we, we go all guns blazing, you know, in our witness perhaps, and we don't know where the person's coming from. And the person says something, oh, we have to change tact. Sometimes it's better to let people speak and find out, you know, if you're meeting them on the street for the first time, just find out where they are, where they are standing. What's their viewpoint, you know? Uh, and then you can launch out uh, from there. And Paul is really, really good at that. We read, uh, we read this evening, 1 Corinthians 9, that uh, he, <coughs> and to the Jews, uh, he became as a Jew, that he might gain the Jews to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them who are under the law, to them that are without the law, and so on and so on. To the weak, I became as weak, to gain the weak. That is, he adapted him, his, his message without compromising, without changing the gospel to reach people. So, same for us, when we talk to adults, and a particular group of adults, you want to maybe want to speak in a certain way, you speak to children in a certain way, and you speak to people from a particular religion in a certain way, maybe, uh, one who's an atheist in a, in a different way. We have to think about uh, these things. And uh, he, uh, the Apostle Paul was doing this uh, in order, he tells us here, to gain men, to gain people, men and women, uh, for Christ. And that should be, of course, our motivation. Uh, he... he, he was one when he saw an opportunity that presented itself, he promptly uh, made use of that opportunity. Uh, Colossians chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6, he tells us, walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. How you ought to have an answer every different kind of man, not just, not just uh, everyone. But here, it's interesting because here he says, redeeming the time. It's a market metaphor. Uh, you, go, you go to the market, you see an item there, perhaps it's on sale, it's reduced in price. Well, you better seize the opportunity and buy up that thing because that opportunity to buy that product may never come, come your way again. So why do you have a chance? Now grab a hold of it. That's the idea here. Redeem the time. Buy up the opportunity while you have it. Uh, and here, here in words, in the context of uh, using your words, uh, say words that are, are fit for the occasion. When the occasion presents itself, be ready with wisdom to grab a hold of that opportunity and use it uh, to win uh, the Lord, uh, win somebody uh, for the Lord, or to say something for the Lord. Think about who you're speaking to. Speak courteously. Don't be rude. There's no need for that. Uh, it may be your last opportunity uh, to win a soul. That opportunity that comes your way. You may never have the chance again. And Paul was was good at doing these, doing this. I just want to look a little bit in detail at a couple of uh, his preachings, just to bring this out and to show it to you. If you turn to Acts uh, 22, 
Acts 22. And here Paul is addressing uh, the mob. Uh, they're after him. They, he's been found in the temple court. Uh, and uh, here, or rather in the temple, and uh, they're out uh, to, to kill him, actually. They're, they're after uh, his blood. Uh, but he is rescued uh, by the, the Roman uh, chief captain. Uh, and then as he's making his way up the stairs, uh, he persuades the chief captain to allow him uh, to speak uh, to the people, the Jews. Uh, and he's going to give his testimony or his defense uh, to the, uh, his fellow brethren. Most of us, if people are chasing after us, want to kill us or We'd run away, we'd, we'd find a place of safety and, and shelter. But instead, Paul, he sees this now as an opportunity uh, for him to speak uh, to his fellow uh, Jews. And so he makes uh, use of it. Right there at the top of the stairs, he stands and he speaks. And I'll just highlight uh, some things out for you in this uh, defense that he makes. Now, firstly, you can see that he, he speaks in Hebrew. In, with the chief captain, he had been speaking uh, in Greek, verse, the previous chapter, verse 37. And uh, now when he turns to uh, his brethren, uh, he speaks in Hebrew. And 22, verse 2, when they heard him speaking the Hebrew tongue, they kept the more silence. Immediately, uh, they stop and they give him a chance uh, to speak. And look at his beginning at verse 1. It's very respectful, men, brethren, and fathers. Uh, that's how uh, he, he addresses them. Uh, hear my defense. And then uh, in chapter 21 and verse 39, uh, when, when the, the chief uh, captain, the Roman chief captain asked him, uh, he, oh, uh, can he speak Greek and so on? One of his responses was, I'm a man which I'm a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia a citizen of no mean city. He highlights Cilicia, or, or Tarsus rather, as a, being a great city that I come from. But now he's talking to the Jews. Uh, he says uh, in verse 3 of chapter 22, I'm a, a very, I'm, I'm, verily I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. And he's highlighting Jerusalem. The emphasis is more on this city, on uh, Jerusalem. So uh, he's, he's uh, as it were, not currying favor, but he's trying to win them over to his side, trying to gain their year. He hints at being a Pharisee when he says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who were probably Sadducees who were listening to him as well at this time. And now's not the time to offend them. He wants them to hear uh, his uh, testimony. And so he, he, he puts it in this way. Verse 3, he talks about the law. But he doesn't say just the law. He says the law of the fathers. This is all conciliatory kind of language. And then uh, in verse 5, he talks about uh, his uh, trip to Damascus. He went with the authority of the elders uh, before they said to the high priest in Acts 9, but here he has the, the whole, all the elders. Perhaps some of them were listening uh, among, or there in the crowd there as well. Uh, and he went to Damascus to bring, oh, sorry, for, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren. 
He's talking about the people he was going to see in Damascus, not the Christians, but the Jews, yet he refers to them as uh, brethren, uh, the unconverted uh, Jews at Damascus. And then uh, when he refers to Ananias a little bit f further on, he doesn't actually call him a brother or a disciple, but uh, verse 12, he refers to him as a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwell there. Can you see what he's doing? He's, he's keeping the Jews on his side by using this kind of uh, language. He's not compromising. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's getting, he get, wants to get his message across. And then in verse uh, 14, uh, he said, The God of our fathers, this is the words of Ananias, hath chosen thee, that, uh, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one. Uh, chosen, uh, chosen thee to do what? God has chosen thee. He doesn't say to go on a mission to the Gentiles because that's going to get their backs up immediately as it happened later. But he, he says, no, to be a witness, verse 15, thou shalt be his witness unto all men. He's putting it in a, in a general way. The offensive word is not mentioned. And then even you could think about the name of Jesus. It's only used once in this uh, defense that he's making. And that was in verse uh, 8, uh, where he had to mention uh, where Jesus, uh, which Jesus, the Jesus of uh, Nazareth. So in this way, you can see, uh, you see, can see Paul's uh, way of uh, approach when speaking uh, with these Jewish people. Verse 17, he refers to himself as again praying uh, in Jerusalem, in the temple. Uh, that's what they all did. They, he identi he's identifying with them. I was in a trance uh, from the Old Testament. They would be familiar uh, with this kind of uh, language. And then he omits uh, to mention uh, when he's saying, well, that first time he was in Jerusalem after his conversion, uh, the Lord said to him, get out quickly from Jerusalem. They won't receive your testimony concerning me. Uh, and he mentions about uh, his, his beatings of the believers and uh, the, the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed and he was standing by. Uh, and uh, he doesn't actually mention, he said these things he saw and heard from the Lord. But he doesn't mention the persecution was the real reason why he left Jerusalem and went back uh, to to, uh, to, his, to Tarsus. Uh, that's, that's not mentioned here. Uh, so again, with a view uh, to persuade them. He's not compromising friends, uh, but uh, he's trying to persuade them uh, to hear and to, to give ear to these things. But then comes the thunderbolt uh, in verse 21. And he said unto me, Depart, for I'll send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And as soon as he said that, <laughs> that was the end. <laughs> they immediately cut him off. Uh, they gave him audience no more. Away with such a fellow, they said, it's not fit that he should live upon the earth. So uh, you can see, I hope, uh, that how he's using this particular opportunity with this particular people uh, and redeeming it uh, for the Lord. In Acts 26, there's a different audience. This time it's uh, Festus, the governor, and King Agrippa. Uh, who was very familiar with the Jewish ways and customs, and all the people in the court, the Jews 
and the Gentiles as well. And here, the apostle is not hindered. He's, he's, at, he's more at liberty. He can speak a little bit more freely about different things. And he does. Uh, he's got a chance now to speak about uh, a doctrine, and he talks about, you can go through it in your own time, the existence of Satan is here. The reality of conversion is here. The necessity of Christ's sufferings is here. Faith is here. Repentance is here. The resurrection is here. And that's going to be the one that really uh, they, they, uh, Felix, Festus rather uh, opposes and, uh, and doesn't like. But there's one thing just to point out to you here, and that's how he uses a conscience. He brings his testimony in, and uh, he emphasizes how uh, he did things in response to his conscience or against it. So in verse 26 and verse 9, he says, I verily thought in myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I consciously thought I ought to do something against uh, the Lord. Verse 14, we looked at it uh, before. Uh, at the end, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He was troubled in his conscience and uh, his mind was not at rest, even though he was persecuting and going after the believers at Damascus. In himself, there was something that was troubling him. His conscience was troubling him. Till finally, in verse 19, he says, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. I responded to my conscience, in other words. Uh, he is saying, I was not disobedient. Do you see what he's doing, friends? Because here, what... Well, what he's doing is he's uh, indirectly witnessing to all those who are listening to him. Everyone has got a conscience. Everyone uh, has uh, got a conscience. Which they're not, if they're not listening to the Lord, um, they'll be troubled in their conscience. They'll be disturbed in their conscience. This is one of our helps in witnessing. Everybody has a conscience. And Paul is not going out directly and saying, you're wrong in this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you should do this, and you should. No. He's indirectly saying, this is what I was like. This is what I, how I was troubled in my conscience. And then I, I, then I obeyed my, I obeyed the Lord, and I followed him. I obeyed what he said to me. I submitted, I gave my life to him. And in this way, he brings them under conviction. Uh, the Lord is using. They are resisting uh, his will. They are going against their conscience too. And uh, through this indirect means, uh, Paul is uh, pointing this out uh, to them. Same for us in, in our uh, witness. We don't have to go out and say, oh, you must give up this and you must do that and you must do this. You know? There's a point sometimes when we need to do that. But if we had one-to-one -one conversations, well, tell them our testimony. How did the, the Lord humble me? The Lord made me see through this vain and empty world. And you know, I, I was brought to see that I was a dreadful sinner. You're not saying you're a dreadful sinner. Well, you are, <laughs> but in an indirect way, without getting people's backs up. You want to maintain those lines of communication with those people that you're trying to win. And uh, that's what Paul uh, is uh, doing uh, here. So Paul adapts to his uh, audience. He's not straightway uh, in your face, uh, not opposing your long-held beliefs, not straightway denouncing uh, your idols and getting people's backs up. He's courteous 
uh, all along the way, civil, respectful. Even that event in Acts 17, we don't have time to look into it. But Acts 17, actually that first verse that he begins with, uh, his, his preaching there, probably it's a mis little bit, we don't get the right idea in the King James Version. But uh, he's actually saying that you are, he's not saying you are, you're very superstitious people. He's actually saying you really are quite a religious people, aren't you? And then he'll go on to explain why they should serve that, uh, the true God who is unknown uh, to them. But he's always like this. He uh, starts off in a civil, respectful way without uh, compromising. So here, a lesson from Paul's uh, preaching uh, for all preachers, but all, for all believers, because we're all uh, witnesses uh, for Christ. Well, I, I hope these few things are, are helpful to us and give us some insight into the letters of Paul and also of uh, his preaching. But uh, let's, uh, God willing, next week, uh, we'll look a little bit more in detail at the <coughs> character and uh, how we should follow it ourselves.